Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Um, starting today with um, gratitude for all of you for being here. So nice to, to have such a nice group, such a nice crowd. And um, uh, everybody sitting with their with sincerity and working with uh, whatever they're working with. Um, I also feel so grateful to our abbot who who uh, everything. <laughs> um, and for Vicky and Royce and uh, everyone who who worked in getting this organized. A lots and lots and lots of work went into it, and it um, we can just waltz in here and feel the the clarity and and order of it, and that's. Um, that's a, a feat that's been done. So um, I, uh, I'm starting with some words from Hong Zhur. He said, the field of boundless emptiness is what exists from the very beginning. You must purify, cure, grind down, or brush away all the tendencies you have fabricated into apparent habits. Thus begins one of his practice instructions. Um, and we're using this book, Cultivating an Empty Field, in our um, practice period class. So you'll, you'll hear me talking about this book and Hong Zhur. Um, so he was someone who lived in the 12th century in uh, China. And um, so, so in, I'll read that again. The field of boundless emptiness is what exists from the very beginning. You must purify, cure, grind down, or brush away all the tendencies you have fabricated into apparent habits. And so it, it would seem that with all those active verbs lined up in a row that um, we have a lot of work to do. <laughs> And it would seem that there's a heavy crust of tendencies that we uh, and habits that obscure our, this bright pearl within. Um, or maybe it would seem that we're one way now and we need to work very hard uh, in order to get to another better way that is just beyond our grasp. Tenshin Roshi's introduction to this edition of Hongjur's teachings begins with the quoted words of Hongjur, empty and desireless, cold and thin, simple and genuine. This is how to strike down and fold up the remaining habits of many lives. When the stains from old habits are exhausted, the original light appears blazing through your skull not admitting any other matters. So there's a question then of how to reconcile this seeming, seemingly vast distinction between the life we live in our day-to-day -day and um, the promise of that field of boundless emptiness that exists from the very beginning. When I first read Tigan Dan Leighton's translation of Hong Zhu's teachings, I felt a renewed promise of 
this um, practice. And it's, it happened almost in coincidence with spring, with all the, the new leaves budding on the trees. It's, it's my favorite time of year. All the, um, I think flowering trees are just a miracle. I just love flowering trees <laughs> and they last for such a short time. You just think, are they going to come back? And then they do with such glory. Um, so it felt like, like that. It felt that kind of, that kind of uh, joy. Um, and when I returned to it, I, it, to begin this process of studying it more closely for the practice period class, I was in the midst of a press of too much in, in my life, too much work to do at school, um, too much uh, in my uh, classes that I'm taking, um, too much sorrow about my mother's dementia. Um, and at that time, I mean, even actually a trip to the grocery store just seemed like way too much. <laughs> like that was I, 15 minutes of mowing the grass. Couldn't do it. <laughs> just uh, couldn't imagine how to do it. So the question came to me, how could um, this field of boundless emptiness be in all that, in all that too much that I was experiencing? So um, take a sip. Hong Jur is referring to the experience of sitting Zazen when he's talking about this boundless emptiness, this, this field. And that is a, a ritual enactment of Buddha nature. When we're sitting in meditation, we're, we're enacting the, our Buddha nature. It's a ritual enactment. So um, when I sit Zazen each morning before school, I can tell what's happening in, in there. I can't tell what's happening inside. Um, it's a conscious space and time that is outside of time. And so I can't evaluate it. it how, do I, how do we reconcile our own experiences of sitting zazen with the exuberant language that Hong Jir uses? So just a bit about Buddha nature, what I mean by that. Uh, Buddha nature is also called the Tathagatagarbha. And there's a sutra called the Tathagatagarbha Sutra. The Buddha tells the, the assembly, I feel like I should move this down a bit, just one second. And I also wanted to say, if we're in the middle of this talk, please feel free to move, get yourself comfortable, stand up, uh, anything like that. So um, uh, make yourself at home. <laughs> So um, the Tathagatagara Sutra, uh, the Buddha tells the assembly that when he looks at them with his Buddha eye, he can see hidden within the obscurations of greed, hate, and confusion, the Tathagatagara, replete with virtues no different from his own. So I think about what would it, what would it feel like to be looked at like that? Um, 
if somebody looked at looked at us and saw that we we were we participated in Buddha nature and with total certainty. Um, so that's that's a that would be a miracle. That's a wonderful thing. And um, I think we can practice it with each other, looking at each other that way. Um, so the Buddha could look at people sitting around him and see it. We ourselves have trouble seeing it in ourselves. When I'm in the midst of a struggle of one thing or another, I have a lot of trouble seeing anything but the greed, hate, and confusion of myself and those around me. I, um, I need calm to see clearly. And I'm sure you've had the experience of engaging in a conflict and then later calming down and seeing it in a totally different way, seeing it more clearly. So many times I've experienced a complete transformed vision of, of a situation once I'm calm. Our zazen practice is training in that calm mind. We, it, it allows us to see clearly. We take it with us throughout our day. And so we continue that training and meeting every situation with a calm mind that opens to insight. So we, we've named this practice period the practice period of, of um, great peace and awareness. And that peace is that calm that we, that we cultivate in zazen. And the awareness comes naturally from that. So whether you're here for this one day session uh, or if you're part of the practice period, it's useful to think of the relationship in, the, in our practice in these two terms of our title of our practice period, great peace and awareness. And all of us can cultivate this practice in peace so that we can open ourselves to the awareness. And um, that's an awareness of our true nature, awareness of who we really are, and an awareness of our great, our true function in the world. So this expression of a, our true function, Hong Zhu uses that often, I noticed in reading this book. And um, I was thinking, what does that mean? What is our true function? What could that mean? And our culture gives us all kinds of identity categories. We could say gender and ethnicity and class and nation, job, political affiliation, relationship connections, region, um, even down to whether we're cat people or dog people, <laughs> or whether we're night people or morning people, <laughs> or whether we're pancake people <laughs> or waffle people. <laughs> and I think my students will ever once in a while get on the whole pancake versus waffle debate and it could go on for a long time <laughs> from like how could there be a question <laughs> um, so these identity categories are not what we're talking about with um, our true function they're um it's not the, not the idea. It goes a little deeper. <laughs> um, so in the Tathagatagarbha Sutra, the Buddha provides a series of analogies for Buddha nature. 
So there actually are nine of them. I'll tell you all nine. So he starts by saying that it's, um, he compares it to a fantastic scene with many Buddhas in lotus uh, calyxes in the sky who are not affected by the withering of the flowers. And then he compares it to honey surrounded by stinging bees and to kernels enclosed by their husks and to a gold nugget in excrement, um, a hidden treasure beneath a house, a sprout in a seed coming, becoming a huge tree. I'm thinking about the trees that um, Boston has been putting out the, the uh, videos of trees, they're so glorious, so beautiful. Um, a golden statue of a Buddha wrapped in rotten rags. A chakravartin in the womb of a forlorn woman. This word chakravartin means a, a, an ideal universal king who re rules ethically and benevolently over the entire world. And the last one, a golden statue within a burned clay mold. All these images present a harsh or unpleasant covering over a luminous and incorruptible essence. And so now I think back again about Hongzhu's instructions that I started with. The field of boundless emptiness is what exists from the very beginning. You must purify, cure, grind down, or brush away all the tendencies you have fabricated into apparent habits. So his choice of building a list of actions gives a sense of the need for diligence and effort in applying our energies to this process. And it also gives a sense that we should try a number of different means for addressing apparent habits. Um, this is a process of enactment. Again, to use that word that um, Taigen Roshi uses. We do share Buddha nature. Its power and clarity characterize who we are, and we must enact it. So it's there, and we're also actively enacting it. Hongzhou notes in one of his practice instructions, although you are inherently spirited and splendid, still you must go ahead and enact it. In this way, he gets around the seeming dualism of that vision of an impeccable essence covered in the obscurations of worldly muck. But he goes further as he notes that the muck of the world is actually part of our practice. And this is something that um, it's hard to get your mind around. I, I, uh, I'm still working on this. Um, so um, in his instructions for Zazen, he asks his monks to sit with, without grasping at the thoughts and feelings that arise. So he isn't urging them to clear their minds of all thought so that their mind is just totally without thought. Um, he's, uh, in, he's asking them to not to grasp at those thoughts as they arise. So we sit here on weekday mornings in Zazen together, and I'm sure everybody has different places where they sit Zazen as well. 
Um, and I can hear uh, cars passing. I can hear them approach. I can tell they're coming. They get a little louder when they're closer and then they go away. And the same thing happens with my thoughts. My thoughts, I can, I can, something happen or emotions too. Um, they, they arise. They sometimes feel like I'm, they're taking over and then they go away. And that process of one over and over and over again with our Zazen practice shows us that they don't, they don't control us, that we don't have to be dragged around by thoughts and feelings. Um, and uh, there's something else there. <laughs> there's something else besides those, those turgid thoughts and, and worries and feelings and plans and all that. Um, so uh, I can let them go and come and go. Um, I don't have to, to um, hold on to them. So as we train the mind in Zazen to let go of thoughts and feelings as they arise, not clinging to them, we actualize our true function. Hongjur says the true self accepts its function, whether emerging or disintegrating, whether in a position of receiving or releasing. And then Taigen Roshi says, the goal of practice is the full integration of deep experiential awareness of the ultimate source of our particular functioning amid worldly phenomenon. So bringing this awareness of Buddha nature, our, 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 just our, our faith in it to, through experience, uh, bringing it into to coordination with our daily life, everyday, everyday world. So the bodhisattva practice is active in the world and it's responsive. Before I started practicing Zen with my body, I imagined escaping from my troubles to a quiet monastery. I just imagined a, a very idealistic vision of, of that, that I would sit for long periods, we would work in silence, there would be no conflict. <laughs> and um, I wouldn't, people wouldn't be coming at me asking me to do things. <laughs> I, would, I, would, I would be capable of whatever, you know, I wouldn't have to be pressed for what I felt was beyond my ability. Um, and then once I started practicing, I realized that after some time that um, there was quite a bit of activity uh, and, and even stress in practice as well. Um, there are conflicts with people. There's, there are frustrations with various things, schedules, all kinds of things. There's discomfort with the needs of the body, as we're all probably feeling today and um, the demands of the grasping mind. So this integration of practice at a Zen center and practice in daily life shows us the power of training the mind in calmness and opening to insight. So when I took my first introduction to Zen meditation from Galen Roshi, I remember this story, I might not have it right. <laughs> But I, I remember her telling that uh, somebody came to the Buddha and said, I, I, it's just, there's so many dis discomforts in the world. Um, is there something that we can do about this? And um, the Buddha said, well, one way would be we could just cover all the, the earth with this soft 
fabric or, or leather or something like that. So you didn't never have any prickly things on your feet, just the whole earth covered up. Um, or maybe you could cover, you could cultivate this in your mind so that all those prickly things don't bother you. <laughs> um, and I, that really stuck with me. I just thought, oh, very smart. That's just a, <laughs> that's a nice way to think about things that we can cultivate a way to live in the world without distress, without without the um, without the uh, getting thrown off our kilter all the time. So I want to say just a little bit about who Hong Zhu was. So he lived in China during the Song Dynasty. It, um, he was he um, lived and taught in Mount Tantong for thirty years. And I looked it up. It's about three hours by train from Beijing. It's so cool. I lived in Beijing and I was very close to where his practice place was. One day I want to go back again and see that. Um, so he would have experienced monks training at a time when Cao Dong, the Chinese word for what we call Soto Zen, was forming as a school. And it would have been easy for him to get caught up in disputes because there were a lot of uh, contentions about how we should do things and what, what the, the best way to, to go about it would be, foundational principles. Um, and one of the key points of contention was about Zazen. It's just so funny to me. It's like, it seems like such a nice, <laughs> calm practice. And everybody was getting really riled up about how we were going to think about Zazen. Um, so when Zhao Dong was forming its identity as a school that centered on Zazen, these two problems arose. One was how to avoid the dualism of treating Zazen as if it were a means to an end, that you're sitting in Zazen so that you can get something out of it. And another one, which might, I've thought about, it might be the same thing, is how to talk about what happens in Zazen without making it a technique, which is also kind of a means to an end. Um, so are we trying to get rid of all these flaws that we have uh, and habits, or are we using our flaws and habits in the enactment itself of Zazen, of our, of our Buddha nature? So um, now I'm going a few hundred years before Hongzhou, and to Hui Nang, who was the sixth ancestor. And he, he did this very um, beneficial thing for us. He applied the emptiness teaching of the Diamond Sutra and the Vimalakirti Sutra to the reality of Buddha nature. When his teacher, Hong Ren, asked his monks to write a poem expressing their understanding, the head monk, Shan Shui, wrote a verse and placed it on a wall. And in, in that verse, he described a mirror that was covered in dust and we needed to get rid of the dust. So his vision um, accorded with the Tathagatagrava Sutra, but it used a dualistic metaphor to describe something that was not dualistic. And here's what Shan Shui's verse sound, what, what it said. The body is the Bodhi tree. The mind is like a luminous mirror. Constantly strive to keep it polished and pure. 
and never let dust collect. So his poem was built on this duality of body and mind and of purity and dust. Kwe um, Nam had his own poem written on the wall in which he proclaimed that the mirror is always already clear, that there is no need to wipe away the dust. So here's Hui Nung's verse. From the beginning, Bodhi has no tree. The luminous mirror also has no stand. Buddha nature is always pure. Who, where could dust settle? So he takes this stand out from under the mirror and um, that shows the mind of no abode. And that, that brings it to mind, Vimalakirti Sutra. And um, he also insists on the clarity of Buddha nature without that heavy labor of wiping away the dust of delusions and confusion. So while we can see that there is a rhetorical force to this story, that uh, Huang Nung got it right, and um, uh, his, his fellow monk, uh, Shan Shui, got it wrong. Um, it's actually interesting to think about both of them getting it right. Uh, so um, that in the, the narrative, like I said, that narrative of the Platform Sutra has Huang Nung carrying the day. He becomes a sixth ancestor and uh, not the other guy. But Hong Zhur comes along 300 years later, and he seems to say that we need both Shan Shui's practice of not letting dust collect. So that means we, um, we have these habits that they, they can't just disappear in a flash. We, we do have awarenesses. And we um, say, oh, see, there's just that means nothing. Why am I holding on to this habit? But then the next day, we're doing it again. <laughs> um, that's just the way we, you know, we, it takes a lot. It takes longer than just one flash to make that those habits disappear. So, um, so Hong, so Hong Jir says maybe we need to work on that, not letting dust collect, and also. Huai Nung's assurance that there is no way to defile the clarity of Buddha nature. Shan Shui's way is the diligence that we apply to our, um, in, in setting an intention and following through on it, the effort we exert when we notice unwholesome habits and investigate to find antidotes for them that will not make matters worse. And Hui Nung's way is recognizing we aren't bad on the inside. Um, there's nothing inherently in us that makes us unwholesome or sinful. Quite the contrary, we participate in a web of interconnections that is whole and good. So we saw in the, from the Tathagatagarbha Sutra, Buddha nature is often defined as a dharma body covered by defilements. And these defilements, though, are what are called adventitious. And that just means that they occur by chance. They're not uh, a part of our intrinsic nature. Um, so Hui Nung's attitude toward defilements melds the Tathagatagarbha teaching and the perfection of wisdom. 
Um, this is a very useful thing for our work in our practice. He suggests that our attempts to remove defilements is counterproductive because it imputes to them an objective reality that they lack and only increases the delusory activity of the mind. So we often do this where we say, um, this is this, this is it's intrinsic to me that I'm a kind of person who's greedy or whatever the thing is that we're worried about, that we think it's something that um, we make it, we make it real. We reify it, this, this uh, defilement, or, you know, this unwholesome habit energy. And uh, Huaynang is encouraging us not to do that. And um, this that idea of kind of reifying it, it's we see it all over the culture, this kind of self-help idea that uh, we want to get rid of what we are now and then find a newer and better self. And that's that's a, a painful, that's that creates a lot of suffering when we try to do that. So when we sit in Zazen, then we aren't working hard at scrubbing away our defilements. To come back to Hangzhou, then we see in him a reconciliation of Shan Sui and Huainang. In his practice instructions, Hangzhou advises, do not let yourself interfere with things, and certainly nothing will interfere with you. Body and mind are one suchness. Outside this body, there is nothing else. The same substance and the same function, one nature and one form, all faculties and all object dusts are instantly transcendent. So it is said the sage is without self, and yet nothing is not herself. So a lot to a lot there. <laughs> and quite a um, just a splendid message. <laughs> Uh, so true reality couldn't be realized if there were no thoughts. If we didn't already have these thoughts and all these, these um, unpleasant <laughs> habits, uh, we, wouldn't be, we wouldn't have anything to work with. And cutting them off cuts off the access to seeing our own nature. That it's one more step. To tell myself to announce it. <laughs> um, the energy and vitality of our Buddha nature is a constant theme in Hongzhu's practice instructions and verses. Here's another one. He says, People of the way journey through the world responding to conditions, carefree and without restraint, like clouds finally raining, like moonlight following the current like orchids growing in shade, like spring arising in everything. They act without mind. They respond with certainty. This is how perfected people behave. Then they must resume their travels and follow the ancestors, walking ahead with steadiness and letting go of themselves with innocence, killing and giving life, rolling up or unrolling is your own independent decision. So quite empowering, this, this idea. So we've come to this, um, to a sense of, in this initial look at Hongzhu's teaching, that while we do want to apply energy 
to our practice. We're always diligent at, in recognizing those habits that hinder our upright stance in meeting life. Those habits are also our teachers. Um, as we begin this practice period, I suggest that we begin a dedicated study of our, our habits, or maybe just one of them, um, that, that hinder our vision of the true and luminous field of boundlessness. And notice that not as something to be gotten rid of, but as something that will pivot into a Dharma gate. May our practice together enable us to enter the fractious world of work and duty with a calm mind and thus transform our vision of it into a boundless Dharma world of work and duty.